0: Can you hear me? I think we'll probably put third service on the website. <laughs> I always have this fear, like you, you want it unplugged, especially like if you need to use a restroom. Like you don't, <laughs> last thing I want. It's like a, like a nightmare. Uh, all right. Uh, many of you, uh, you may be familiar with this story, but it's, uh, it proves a really powerful point. Sherlock Holmes and Watson, um, well, a- after a night on the town, they're sleeping. They're camping out. And in the middle of the night, they both get woken up, kind of startled, and Holmes looks up and says, Watson, look up, what do you see? And Watson says, I see stars and stars and more stars. And Holmes says, well, Watson, what does that tell you? And Watson replies, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Astronomically, it also tells me it's probably about 2.45 in the morning, Holmes, and Meteorologically, it tells me uh, that based on the stars, tomorrow's probably going to be a really beautiful day. Theologically, it tells me that we're just a really small part of a gigantic universe. We're just a speck in the size of the entire universe. Why, Holmes? What does it tell you? Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. <laughs> Here, let it sink in for a second. All right. Here's the point. Like Sometimes you can be profound. Right? You can have all the answers, you can understand how all these things work, but you miss the point. you kind got to miss the big picture. You miss what's uh, simple because you're too uh, enamored with the complex. And Hebrews chapter 8 is going to kind of help us out this way. It's kind of the midway point in the theological argument of the entire book. If you're a guest with us, we're preaching through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're just walking through the book week by week. And last week, uh, David finished a section... Um, of the book by uh, preaching on chapter 7 and who Melchizedek was. We get to chapter 8 and it kind of stands by itself. It flows into chapter 9 and 10, but there's this really distinct argument that ends in Hebrews 7 and picks back up in Hebrews 9. And chapter 8 kind of stands as a reminder for us. The first seven chapters, the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to make this point to this group of Hebrew Christians who'd been persecuted and tempted to go back to just uh, following their Jewish ways, a bunch of laws and customs. And he's trying to tell them, no, you don't want to go back to that because there's this better way that's been made available. So he starts out in the first couple chapters saying, hey, think about angels and how incredible angels are. But then he makes a very strong argument. Angels are incredible. Jesus is better. He says, think about Moses. Moses, all the things he accomplished, all the things that he did, how uh, incredible of a leader he was. And Moses was great. Jesus is better. And he makes an argument for that. He says to Abraham, man, Abraham, the father of the faith, he did so many incredible things. Abraham was awesome. And then he makes this argument, Jesus is better than Abraham. Then last week, David said, here's Melchizedek, this kind of mysterious figure from the Old Testament, kind of shows up very briefly in the Old Testament, and and we don't fully understand. We know he's this incredible person. He was both a priest and a king, which was, no one else was that way. And he says, there's this priest, king, Melchizedek, and then he makes an argument, Jesus is better. Now he gets to chapter 8, and it's kind of this quick, like, okay, we've been looking at the stars. Let me remind you about the tent. And he picks up in verse 1 of chapter 8, if you have a Bible. Now, the point of what we're saying is this. So he says, here's the point. I love the way that translates. Here's the point, guys. Don't miss this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's going to use the language of tent and tabernacle. Uh, Ben, toward the end of our service, is going to read a passage uh, that talks about God dwelling with us. And this idea of tabernacles, God came and dwelt among us. And in the Old Testament, he did it in the structure known as the tabernacle. And he's going to make this argument that Jesus is a different kind of high priest. Now remember, these Christians would have known their scriptures really well. And for them to know the Bible or to know the scriptures was to understand their Old Testament. Now here's why that's important. Because as they hear this author making an argument toward Jesus, certain things are going to be trigger words for them. They're going to think, okay, wait, I understand that concept. I understand that concept. And in these first uh, couple verses, there's two things that really stand out. The first is this. They're going to notice that this high priest, Jesus, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's okay, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. This is a place of authority. This is an argument for Jesus being above everyone else, being superior to everyone else. It says that he's, he's seated on the throne of the majesty on high. Jesus is God. Let me just put it that way. Okay? He's got more authority than anyone ever. He's a different kind of priest. He's a different kind of priest. Now, we also learned in studying through Hebrews that nowhere in your Bible, other than Melchizedek, is anyone ever both a priest and a king. Meaning, you can't serve as a king and be a priest, and you can't serve as a priest and be a king. So you're either going to minister to the people or rule over the people. Okay? But here in this argument, uh, what, what he's saying here is, he is the king because he's seated in the throne. But he's also the priest because he's seated. He's he's the high priest unlike any other high priest. Any other high priest in all of of history, Jesus stands aside from them all. And the second thing that stands out to them, though, is that he's seated. Because everywhere in your Old Testament, whenever a priest would come in to do their priestly work, they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, they would would pray for the people, they would speak to the people on behalf of God. They did the ministry. Let me just... Summarize it that way. So they were not only ruling with authority, they were doing ministry. And when they would come in to do their ministry, these priests, they would never sit. Because they were always working. They always had work to do. They were always working on different things, and there was not even a seat available for them to take a seat. They always had to stand when they were working. So when this author says Jesus being a ruler is seated in the throne... But he's sitting down doing ministry. So while he's still ministering, he's actually sitting down. He's not standing up doing work. Uh, You have to come to understand what they would have thought of. Now, let me help you kind of wrap your mind around this. To really get the gravity of this, you've got to understand how religion works in general. A lot of religions in the world, okay? There's all kinds of religions everywhere. And all these different religions believe all kinds of different things, but there are some things in common that all religions have. Okay? The first thing that all religions have in common is this understanding or this belief that behind reality, there's this ultimate reality. There's this thing that's beyond us. We don't experience it in this life. So every religion that you encounter, it, they, they believe that there's a reality and then an ultimate reality. Okay? The second thing that they believe, though, is this, that be, between us and that ultimate reality, there's a gap. There's this gap. And then religions begin to differ. How do you bridge the gap? Behave this way, do these things, act this way, right? You do all these different things. Okay, so they believe that there's this gap. Now, what's unique about Jesus being a priest and a king is this. He is the ultimate reality, he's the king. So he defines what that ultimate reality is. But in addition to that, he's also the bridge over the gap that separates us from that reality. So he's unlike anyone in all of history, and he's above and unlike any other religious teaching in the world because he is the ultimate reality. But he's also the bridge that covers the gap that separates us from that ultimate reality. Okay? We know this because these verses teach he's a priest and he's a king. And this would have really stood out to them. And what this does for them to understand, like I don't have to, you don't have to earn anything. You don't have to keep going through these rituals. You see, the tabernacle served in those days as this place where they'd come and they'd offer these sacrifices and they'd go through these regulations and these rules. And what he's saying is Jesus is a priest and a king. He's done for you what you can't. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to go back to that any longer. I want you to think, what would it look like for a group of Christians to really wrap this around their minds? Think we get caught up in the stars we missed at the tent, right? All of a sudden, we're like, wait, the tent's gone. The basic understanding that Jesus really has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. What would it look like for a group of Christians to live with the confidence that you don't have to earn it anymore? I don't have to be good enough. I don't have to behave according to these rules. Jesus has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. He's bridged the gap between me and God. I think it would change the world. He continues, and this is a bigger chunk. He's going to continue making this argument for Jesus being unique, unlike any other priest. Here's what he says. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So when they come in, a high priest would offer sacrifices for people. Thus, it's necessary for this priest, Jesus, to also have something to offer. Now, if, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better There's a lot there. But here's the argument that he's making. He said the priest's duties in the tabernacle were to come in and offer a sacrifice. They could not come in empty-handed. You did not walk into this place empty-handed. You'd offer a sacrifice so that God could dwell with his people because the gap separated us from God, and that gap was sin. Our sin would not allow God to be in our presence, and so this high priest would come in on behalf of the people and say, on behalf of all the people, we offer this sacrifice to atone for their sins and therefore be able to tabernacle, to dwell with God. And he says, in the same way, Jesus serves the same way. However, it's different as well. Because Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Earthly priests, okay, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant system, came from the tribe of Levi. Well, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. It looks different. What he's doing here is he's contrasting. There was this all this work that went into the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus' ministry is about this heavenly tabernacle, this ability for us to dwell with God apart from everything that's going on here. So he uses this analogy. And he says, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Covenant, is like a shadow, meaning all the things that they were doing were pointing to a better reality that Jesus comes along and fulfills, Okay. So everything that the priest would come in and do, offering a sacrifice, making sure everything was the way it was supposed to be so that God could tabernacle or dwell with his people. Jesus comes and offers a sacrifice that is above all other sacrifices. It's a once and for all sacrifice. So that now God can dwell with his people in intimacy. Okay? It's a shadow. Now, the people in the audience that received this letter would have been familiar with uh, Plato. Plato's teaching on, on uh, the cave, the shadowy cave. And so it's a, it's a parable that Plato told. Plato thought that all of our knowledge was simply placed in something that was not the ultimate reality. Here's how he described it. It's like a man being in a cave that is lit by a fire. If you've ever been in a dark room with a small light, what starts appearing on the walls? Shadows. And you see all these different things. You get fun with kids and make shadow puppets and scary things and fun things and goofy things. And you can create all these shadow figures on the walls, right? And what Plato was saying is that that's our knowledge. Our knowledge is based on the shadowy things on the walls, not on the actual substance that's being projected onto the wall. And see, this is what the author is saying about what Jesus has done. The Old Testament, all the things that we had to do in the Old Testament, all the laws were like the shadows on the wall, pointing to a better reality that we could not attain. And then Jesus comes and he's the actual better reality. Let me illustrate for you this way. Before my wife and I met, I had been in a few different relationships, dating different people. And if you're like me, maybe you can relate to this, and maybe not, but when I was in these relationships, I kind of got tunnel vision. I thought, okay, this is the person, and you, you, you start to feel like you care about that person. You might even convince yourself that you love that person, and, and, and our culture kind of talks like that, like, hey, the first person that I, my first love, the first person I ever loved. But here's what happened for me. I dated people, even I had an extended dating relationship, thought that I was in love. The relationship ended. I thought, okay, that was like your first love. But then I met my wife. And the more I got to know my wife and spend time with her, the deeper I began to fall in love with her. And the feeling that I have with my wife, and I'm not just saying this so that you're like, oh, that's a perfect Hallmark card. I'm saying this to be genuine. When I look at my wife, the feeling I have when I look at her is unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. Which makes me think that that was just shadows. Like, that that wasn't a full feeling. It wasn't really love. It was like shadow on a wall. And what I have with Sarah is the real thing. It's the substance. It's not the shadow. It's not the fake thing. It's the reality. This is the point of this passage. It's saying, guys, don't forget that every all the laws... All the behavior, when when Moses got the Ten Commandments and they based all the laws on those commandments and they instituted these commandments and then continually everybody began to break their side of the deal with God and then the sacrifices had to be made on behalf of the people. All of that pointed to this reality that was just a shadow pointing to the day when the sacrifice would be made where we could really be with God and really have a connection with God. So it's all just pointing. In fact, he uses the language in this passage of the idea of covenant. Seven different times he mentions the word covenant in our passage. Seven times. And he's saying the old covenant was a shadow pointing to the substance of the new covenant. The old way of doing things. The old covenant. Now a covenant, understand it in two ways. Keep two things in your mind. A covenant is like a marriage. Meaning our, our covenant with God is not this cold interaction. It's not just a transaction. It's not signing on a piece of paper and you've got this covenant and and that's not all there is to it. The covenant with God is relational, which means there's an intimacy to it. But it's also, there is a transactional element to it because it's it's not just like a marriage, it's also like a treaty. When a more powerful nation would come and conquer a less powerful nation, they would begin to have a treaty. And in this covenant relationship, the less powerful nation, the one that could not live up to, to doing things, did not get to dictate the terms of the covenant. And so with us and God, God dictates the terms of the covenant. We have a choice. I can enter into this covenant or not enter into this covenant, but I don't get to negotiate the terms. The terms are laid out by God. But when we enter into the covenant, it's like a marriage. It's this connection. This was why God instituted covenant. And over and over and over again, the people began to break their part of the covenant. So then God sends Jesus to not only institute the covenant, but to fulfill it. And Jesus comes and does for us what we're powerless to do for ourselves. And so he gets done teaching on this. When you're preaching a sermon, just to let you in on the preparation part, you get done teaching a passage and you have to ask this question. Like, so what? Like, why does this matter to everybody? What's the big deal? That's the question you have to ask when you're writing a sermon. Then you get to what we call application. What's beautiful about this passage is that the author goes to an Old Testament passage and gives us the application. He answers the so what question. He says, here's what covenant is. Here's how, what Jesus has done is the substance and the shadows just pointed to the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. And here's why it matters to you. And he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is actually the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. And he's making this really stark point to say, here's why the new covenant matters and why it should matter for you. Here's the first thing he says in verse 10. He says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So what he's saying is the new covenant, Okay, it gives us this access to Jesus. Here's how I like to think of it. Many of us, we still get stuck in this. Maybe you get stuck in this the way I do. I view my relationship with Jesus, even though I wouldn't say this out loud, as something I have to earn. And so I have to behave like a Christian. Maybe you grew up in a home where it was like, act like a Christian, behave like a Christian, only listen to Christian music, only watch Christian movies, uh, only, only talk to Christian people. And we create this, like, this sacred, secular divide, and we divide ourselves, and it's just all these rules. And when we break the rules, we feel like God's mad at us, and he's upset with us, and we've somehow tarnished our relationship with him. But that's how oftentimes we, if we're not careful, we begin to try to build our own bridge. But when, when I read passages like this, I'm reminded of thinking, if I'm building my own bridge to get to God, here's usually how it works out. Right, It's like I put all this effort into it and trying to earn my way and it just never connects. It's like, oh, messed up again, right? And I need this reminder that he's given me. The whole purpose of the new covenant is that you could stop being a bridge builder. You can't build the bridge. You're powerless to build the bridge that will get you back to God. And so he tells us in verses verse 10 that the new covenant following Jesus is about internal realities and not external regulations. It's about this internal change that God has made, not just this external regulation you have to obey. Right? There's a word in your New Testament for religion. It's a Greek word. It's translated ceremonies or regulations. But here's a fascinating thing. This word religion in the New Testament is never attached to Christianity by the authors of the New Testament. It's never attached to Christianity. There's this time in the book of Acts where this guy Festus, he attaches it to Christianity. He says the, the Christian religion. And then there's this other time where the Apostle Paul's writing about his previous life as a Pharisee. And he says, as a Pharisee, I was a very religious person. But the word never appears to describe Christianity. And the reason I think that's the case is because the Roman world, they were all about religions. You could have any religion that you wanted. You could obey any religion you wanted. As long as you didn't disturb the peace, you could believe what you want. There was all kinds of religions. Every street corner had a different religion. Thousands of religions. And yet, the Romans persecuted Christians and called them atheists. Why is that? It's because Christianity was not the beginning of a new religion, a new way of you behaving and living your life. In fact, I would say it was an anti-religion. It was the end of religion. That's why the Romans couldn't wrap their mind around it. They couldn't understand it, and so they just persecuted it. There's an English preacher, his name's Dick Lucas, and he says, the best way for you to understand how uh, the Hebrew author's trying to talk about is to picture a conversation between a first century Roman and a Christian. So picture a conversation between a Christian and their neighbor. And the neighbor comes, the Roman neighbor comes and says, oh, you've got a new religion, that's great, it's very interesting, where's your temple? And Christian says, no temple, Jesus is our temple. Okay, well, where do your priests operate? Like where, do they, like, where do they operate for crying out loud? Like, well, we don't need priests. Jesus is our priest, no priests. Where do you guys offer your sacrifices? Where do you guys do your offerings? And where do you go and perform your religious behavior so that God is happy with you? Like, God's going to be mad at you if you don't behave a certain way. Where do you go to do that? And he says, well, Jesus is our sacrifice. We're already fully accepted. What kind of religion is this? It's not really a religion. See, Jesus didn't come to give us another religion, a set of guidelines, he came to connect us in a relationship with God so that God could tabernacle among us, in us, like inside of us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel's not the end of religion, it's the opposite of religion, because religion says, religion says behave this way, do these things, and God will be happy with you. But Jesus comes along and the gospel says this, at an infinite cost. Don't let that be lost in you. That's the 10. At an infinite cost, through Jesus, you are loved and accepted. Live in response to that. And so now, walking with Jesus is about living in response to what He's done for us, not in an effort uh, to earn it. I hope you can see the difference there. Verse 11, He gives us more. He says, here's what else the New Covenant means. They shall not teach, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Here's what you learn about that. Following Jesus offers you a personal relationship with God. And it's, a, it's an offer to all people. There are no spiritual elite. All have the same access to Jesus. No one's better than anyone else. Here's why that's important. You don't need to depend on anyone else to connect with Jesus. You don't. This is so important for the vision of our church. Our church is really, like, our whole vision as a church is around this idea that dependency is near impossible to break. God did not intend for you to come and sit in a room once a week and depend on your entire spiritual life on one person who's a great teacher, who gets up and gives you everything you need to do. That's not what he intended. There's nothing wrong with what we do when we come together and there's preaching and teaching and Bible study. But if that's all you're doing, we're missing it. The New Covenant tells us, no, it's not a bunch of rules and things that you learn. It's not the stars, it's the tent. Meaning, every day he wants you to wake up on Monday morning and you just can't wait to get alone with him and to spend time with him and to hear what he would have to say to you and how he would speak to your soul and how you see how his word is shaping you and forming you. That's personal. It's a personal connection between you and God. I'll say it this way, it's kind of bold. But Jesus didn't come so that you could get a bunch of moral behavioral guidelines from a preacher so that you could then leave and try to be a really good person. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came so that you could be intimately connected to the Father. Now, preachers help, I hope, right? Bible studies help, but they are no substitute for the personal connection that you have with Jesus. He continues in verses 12 and 13. He says this, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, meaning it's just a shadow. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, meaning Jesus is the real substance. So the new covenant frees us from the power of sin and promises to free us from the presence of sin. Understand what I mean by that. When you became a Christian, when you were baptized into Christ, in that moment you were freed from the penalty of sin. The penalty for sin, according to the Bible, is death, meaning that gap, you can't jump it, you can't build a bridge over it, eventually you fall into it, and you're away from God. But Christ has built the bridge, meaning when you become a Christian, the penalty for sin has been forgiven. But as a Christian living inside this new covenant relationship with Jesus, you are freed from the power of sin, the things that get you caught up, the struggles that you have, the things that weigh down on you, the addictions, the pain, the suffering, the bad choices, the shame, the guilt, the very things that you're allowing to identify who you are, they're forgiven and wiped away. And you live with this hope that one day, it's not just the penalty of sin and the power of sin, one day I'm going to be freed from the very presence of sin because when I get with Jesus, there is there is no more presence of sin at all. One day when I'm with him, sin is gone and vanquished. And that's the hope that we live with. See, Jesus' sacrifice didn't just forgive you, it changes the way that God looks at you. Think about that. God does not see you and identify you with the shame that you've been carrying. He sees you and looks at you, and he sees Jesus because of what Jesus did for you. And the bridge is built, and the presence of God is felt inexperienced. The problem is, with most of us, is two things. One, some of us, we beat ourselves up too much. We think, how could God possibly love me? Like, really, I just mess up. I've got this sin I keep struggling with. I don't treat people right. I'm angry all the time. I just, how could God possibly love me? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't forget, like, you learn a lot about God, but if you forget what it means to know him, you will start to beat yourself up too much over your sin. But it's been forgiven. And if you could see yourself the way that God sees you, I mean, really see yourself the way the Father looks at you, then you would have the confidence that He desires for you. But some of us beat ourselves up too much. Others of us, we build ourselves up too much and we think, how could God not love me? I'm awesome. I never miss a Sunday. I'm in every Bible study. I teach, I serve. Anytime there's a service project, I'm there first. I'm reading my Bible at home. I pray with my family. I am nailing it when it comes to being a Christian. Now, you would never say that out loud. But some of us build ourselves up pretty, pretty big. And in those moments, you fail to see how big that gap was. And in those moments, you think you're building a bridge, only to come short again, thinking you've got this thing figured out, and you don't. And in those moments, we fail to feel the weight of what our sin has done so that we can appreciate the grace that Jesus has offered. I'll never forget, for the rest of my life, the night before my son was baptized into Christ, Because we talked to him for months and months and months and didn't know if he got it. He walks into the room. He's got tears in his eyes. He's been sitting alone, thinking through this. He comes walking into the room, and he's just weeping. And he says, I don't want to go to hell. And In that moment, I just knew, like, man, he's ready. He feels the weight. He sees the gap. He wants the bridge builder. So we baptized him in the Christ the very next morning. It was one of the most powerful moments of my entire life because I recognized he got it. And friends, if you could just see yourself the way that God sees you, then you would have the humility that God wants for you. I like the way Seth Wilson of Ozark Christian College says it. He says, people don't need a new start. They need a new heart. This isn't self-help. This isn't trying harder. This isn't get a new planner, buy a new outfit, and drive a new car so you can feel better about yourself for the three weeks that that lasts. This isn't about building your own bridge and accomplishing all the goals that you have for your life. This is simply about recognizing you cannot build the bridge big enough for the gap and you need the bridge builder. And if we can release Christians with that kind of confidence. Another insight in the sermon preparation, you usually want to end it well. So uh, I was struggling, and, and I was coming up against a deadline, and the deadline was this. I traveled down to Washington, Indiana for the last two days, all day Friday, all day Saturday, with a very close friend of mine, to pray and talk through some things. We just kind of disconnect uh, every year for a couple of days but I knew I have to get this sermon done before then or I'm in big trouble because I'm not getting home until late Saturday night, but I didn't finish it. And so like, I got to this point where we're at right now and then I was like, uh, but I have to go and I have to really disconnect. So I did and I thought, God, I don't know what to do. I'm driving home last night and I'm thinking, Lord, I just trust you with this. I'll work on it when I get home and I'm just going to play this playlist and, and just kind of pray and think. And I'm driving and this playlist has one of my favorite musical artists on it. His name's Andrew Peterson. And we had Andrew Peterson in a few years ago uh, to New Hope. It was just a powerful night. Many of you got to hear his music. If you've never heard his music, go get it. it. It's just really, really well done. He's just a gifted writer. And this song comes on. And this song is a song that he wrote for his wife. But all through scripture, our relationship with God is compared to that of a marriage. And the words to this song could not fit better with Hebrews 8. I thought, Lord, thank you. You just gave us the end of the message for Sunday morning. So I want to read the lyrics to you. You'll see them on the screen, and I want you to think through what it means to live in a new covenant relationship with Jesus. He says this, Because we bear the light of the Son of Man, so there's nothing left to fear. So I'll walk with you in the shadowlands till the shadows disappear. Because He promised not to leave us, and His promises are true. So in the face of all this chaos, I can dance with you. Let's go dancing in the minefields. Let's go sailing in the storms. Let's go dancing in the minefields and kicking down the doors. Let's go dancing in the minefields and sailing in the storms. This is harder than we ever dreamed, this life. But I believe that's what the promise is for. That's what the covenant, the new covenant is for. That's what the promise is for. What would it look like for a group of Christians to live this out? This new covenant promise. We'd turn this city upside down. People wouldn't know what to do to deal with people with that kind of confidence and that kind of humility. A group of people that walked around knowing, like, I don't have what it takes, but I know the bridge builder. I know the one who bridged the gap and connected me to my Father in heaven. I know what it means to tabernacle with the Lord because of what Jesus has done for me. That's a hope. That's a hope worth living out. Let's pray.